listeners to episode 285, Breaking Cape Babe with Bowdrin and sometimes someone other than Barry Rose, but that was only two times, and that was in the very early days of the podcast. And unfortunately, for the last 280 plus, I've been stuck with none other than Barry Rose. Barry, how you doing? I boy, it's uh, it, I, with an opening like Damn that, with and faint intro, praise, if you will. I was going to tell you, holy cow, stuck with me for almost six years at this point, and it's uh, but yeah, it's uh, you know, as we start, what episode is this, Jeff? What are we at? Two eight five. Wow, so we have fifteen episodes of our regular show coming. That's back it. To this, That's it. Get which, your Patreon subscription now, you mfers. Probably puts us to like the end of June is probably somewhere in that. And then we are going to go Patreon only and we're going to see how that, how that actually goes. So, you know, it may last a month. It may last a year. Who knows? But, uh, it's been a ride. I, Jeff, there, I know that, uh, your heart is a little heavy today and there was something that you wanted to bring up. Well, I think both of us want to bring up. Unfortunately, we had a loss in the group, uh, as I received a, uh, a note from uh, our Patreon guest, Carl Stern. And then I reached out to Barry. Barry confirmed that we had lost our good friend, Matt Mann, uh, over the weekend. Barry, uh, very, very sad. Uh, just a real, a real gut punch. It was, you know, it, it was a gut punch. And, uh, I got to say, I was, uh, it, my mood really dramatically changed. And I, I don't think the rest of my day was even close to it because I was just thinking of Matt and what he had been through. And I'll share with you, I, I had shared with you this off air and I'll share this because, Matt had made a lot of this public, but, uh, first off, he was a diehard wrestling fan and he was a good guy. He was a very loyal, uh, supporter of what we do here at Breaking K Fabe. And he would message me and a lot of times he disagreed with me, which I liked. He would, you know, over Thunder Rosa and even the list that we're doing with Carl Stern, Matt had a, a very good relationship with Carl and he would message me every time he heard, heard me say something about Carl. But, uh, Matt, Matt went through a, uh, a divorce a couple of years back. And I, you know, I think since COVID, my, my timeline is all screwed up maybe two and a half or three years ago. And, and he really took it hard. And, and the reason I bring that up was he, he made that public through social media and Matt was able to bounce back and got into a relationship with a young lady. Uh, I guess maybe a year and a half ago, give or take. And he was really happy and you could see it and literally proclaim, pro- proclaiming his love for her on a daily basis. And you could just see how happy the guy was. And, you know, everybody deserves to be happy. And I guess about three or four weeks ago, they actually, uh, separated details. I'm not sure of, but he was very bummed. And, and again, his social media postings would let you know that he was very sad. And I reached out to him. And I, you know, it matted, uh, again, being such a supporter and reaching out to me, I was like, Matt, what's going on? And he basically said that he had, he had been living with this young lady, had moved out and he was lonely. He was very sad. And I, I think Matt was having a really hard time over the last few weeks. And again, it's social media being the indicator. You can read between the lines and see it. And he was very active on Facebook and he posted a photo yesterday and it was himself in the hospital and he had on a mask and I think he was giving the thumbs up and it, the only caption was yup. And, uh, it, you could see that he was smiling in the photo. You could tell by his eyes that he was smiling. And next thing you know, I guess an hour, hour and a half later, 
his brother is posting that Matt Matt has passed away. And uh, as was pointed out, his ex-wife that I think he actually remained on good terms with posted that he had suffered a massive heart attack and had passed away. And I got to tell you, it this was a real, a real gut punch because, A, it was unexpected. And, uh, you know, you don't want to see somebody suffering, which he was. He had been suffering the last few weeks. And it had just been, I'm going to assume, a really shitty time for him. And uh to go out like this, it, it, it was painful. So Jeff, I, I know that you will, uh, you'll join me. Sweet Lou, I, Sweet Lou is good friends with Matt as well. Having, Lou, would you join us for a moment? Sure thing. Uh, Lou, you know, you, you happened, you got to meet Matt at a couple of shows, at least the one show. Uh, you know, he was a fun guy, right? Oh, absolutely. He had reached out to me after I started producing. And uh, he had me on a, a podcast he liked to do. And so it was just an hour of him and me just uh, shooting the bull. Very fun guy. And then I got to meet him uh, for the first time in real life. He happened to be at Target, and I was there, too. And it was a, that was a happy coincidence. And then last time I saw him was at that West Coast Pro Show, I think, back in July. And... He was just somebody who was, well, I guess he was very gung-ho. He was definitely a part of the wrestling community and very enthusiastic. And I think the people who knew him and certainly those people who knew him better than me are, are really feeling the loss right now. Yeah, and Sweet Lou, did I read today that that the promotion out there is actually going to run an event in his honor as well? That's right. West Coast Pro, uh, wow. they, have, they have monthly events, be it in South San Francisco, where they originally started, or in San Francisco, or in other parts of Northern California, like Sacramento or Santa Cruz. Each event usually has a title and it's sort of tied in with Bay Area pop culture. It could be a lyric from a rap song or whatever. The event in June, uh, they had a name for it, but Scott Briganti, the owner of West Coast Pro, just announced yesterday that they're changing the name of that event to Kid Zombie, which was, I think, Matt's uh, DJ name. That's fantastic. Jeffrey, will you, uh, will you lead us in a toast? Yes, please. Uh, I hope, uh, not only will all three of us, but all the listeners raise an adult beverage to the memory of our friend Matt Mann. And I will ask each of the brother shippers to do this for us because as Barry and Lou said that Matt was such a zealous and enthusiastic fan of wrestling. The next time you go to a wrestling show, WWE, AEW, New Japan, I don't care. It can be in front of 20 people. When you're there before the matches start, look up, think about Matt and say, reach for the sky boys. Matt, we're thinking about your brother and we miss you. So now on to more mundane things, Barry, on this particular episode of Breaking K Fable with Boudreaux and Barry, we are going to be discussing a couple of very key issues, Barry. Number one, we will be addressing an article that I read called why do people hate AEW? Very oh. in the news. So oh. we'll, we'll be talking about that. We'll be uh, discussing a recent uh, situation that happened 
and another AEW, uh, I'm sorry, and another Arcadian Vanguard group where some people were called out and which led to this discussion about AEW and whether or not their fans or their detractors are more delusional. We'll be talking about that. And hey, here's a special bit of news just breaking right now, Barry. We're not going to be having a match of the week. What? What? I think this might be the first regular episode, not an Unsolved Mysteries, not anything like that, not a Patreon. This is going to be the very first episode where we do not have a match of the week. Is it because Barry forgot to watch the match? No, that has nothing to do with it. The reason we're not having a match of the week is because, Barry, we will be discussing the upcoming CWF Legends Fan Fest with new author Steve Kern. And we'll be talking about his book, The Kern Chronicles, Volume 1, The Fabulous Wrestling Life of Steve Kern. Always a good time to talk to the fabulous one, Barry. Oh, man. And two, and I, this is one of the interviews that I, I know that I enjoy best because we, we ask Steve a question and Steve goes for like 20 minutes. So this he is goes a, on autopilot pretty he much. He does. And, and <laughs> we can just sip. I think there were periods we were sitting back, we're eating, we're drinking. And uh, I think you hung up on him a couple times though. I think just, just a couple <laughs> apparently. But, uh, this is, you know, look, you want to be educated. Steve Kern is the guy in professional wrestling to do that. And we, we obviously, we had Steve on. He's going to be at the Fest on June 3rd, but Steve has also released his book, and Steve has been around professional wrestling over 50 years at this point, and this is a 400-page book all the way up from the beginning of his career and his childhood, actually, up until 1987. Not only a great interview, and I don't know if interview is even the right word, a great chat with Steve Kern, but this is just a fun episode all the way around, Jeff. Yeah, and we want to give a special shout out to, uh, Steve's, uh, co-author, uh, Ian Douglas, uh, who was at the last fan fest. So, uh, thank yep. you so much, Ian, for helping Steve, uh, put his life, uh, into book form. Uh, great job. But before we get to Steve Currenberry, why don't we talk a little AEW? Barry, it's time now to do a little segment where we piss off a majority or maybe a uh, minority. I don't really know. 50-50 split, if you will, of people who hate AEW. In our group, <clears throat> Jason Ward, <clears throat> and uh, there's a couple others I could mention. But I came across this article courtesy of The Sportster that says 10 valid reasons wrestling fans don't like AEW. Barry Rose, are you ready to talk about why people hate AEW? Yeah, absolutely, too. Look, and I, you and I have been staunch. I, I was going to say defenders, but that's not really the correct word. We've been supporters of AEW since the uh, the promotion started somewhat three and a half years ago, four years ago. And look, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Jeff, as I watch episodes and I watched, we're recording this the day after Dynamite, but I watched Rampage earlier in the week. And look, there is a lot that you could criticize. I, I think, you know, and I don't want to, because I don't know where you're going. I don't know anything about this article, but I think we've been honest and fair in our assessment of AEW. Uh, at least certainly over the last few months. Would you concur with that? I would concur. I would say that uh, when uh, they do stuff we like, we uh, applaud them. When they do stuff we don't like, we criticize them. Uh, you know, whether they uh, think, if anyone's listening, uh, they think our criticism or our, uh, our praise is valid, that is completely up to them. Uh, I can say that uh, I know that uh, – it is a polarizing topic uh, whenever AEW is uh, discussed, uh, not only among uh, 
our listeners, but among other people who follow other Arcadian shows. I will say Barry Rose in defense of us. We have never had, as far as I know, any of our listeners wish any other Arcadian host cancer of the ass. I don't know if you can read that story, Barry. <laughs> But yes. uh, so good, good times on the Arcadian Network. Oh, so yeah. we're going to take this. Uh, it's uh, 10 reasons why people are valid reasons why people hate AEW. Barry, we're going to discuss whether or not these reasons are, in fact, fair. Number 10, too much blood. Barry Rose, fair or unfair? <sighs> Tough one. Last night, Jeff, I don't think we saw any blood, right? No, nope, um, there was not. And Moxley wrestled, which is the odd thing, and we still didn't see blood. I'll say that I'll go yes with an asterisk. And the reason I say that is I'm a firm believer that I think blood can add drama to a match. If you have the same guy, Moxley, bleeding every week, it loses all of the impact it should have. If you have two guys bleeding on a two-hour television show, the impact of the blood is also lost. Is there too much blood in that case? I guess there is, right? Well, so I was talking uh, to uh, the the friend uh, Flaherty uh, there today, uh, and I was discussing the match that we have as our match of the week this week. Uh, and I don't think you've had a chance to watch it yet, so we're not going to go into the discussion of that match. But uh, I was talking about the fact that this was a uh, hell in the cell match where there was no blood. Okay, and he brought it, you know, and we were talking about how, you know, why do you have a cage match if there's no blood? I mean, that's kind of the point of a cage match throughout wrestling history. I get it. Vince does not like blood. Okay. But is it fair? Because he brought up, shockingly, a fair point that if you're not going to have blood on Raw or SmackDown, and I know I'm kind of going off topic here a little bit. Gee, we kind of do that every once in a while, Bear. Uh, but if you're not going to have blood on uh, SmackDown or Raw, if you're doing a pay-per-view or something like, yeah, your WrestleMania-type shows, would it be fair to offer uh, blood uh, in a gimmick match? Would it be fair to offer blood there? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, again, I, I believe blood does have a place in professional wrestling. Sure. It's, and, and you make a great point, you know, or Flaherty, uh, in that if you're having a gimmick match, it would be like having a Russian chain match with no blood. If you have a cage match, there's really a reason. People are going to expect it as well. So sure. don't do that because, in my opinion, you're shortcutting the fans. And we're definitely talking about WWE in that regard. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So, would, so here's I mean, the reason I, I even bring that point up. So if that's the case, if you don't want to have the WWE have it on SmackDown or Raw and they'll save it for their big shows, uh, WrestleMania, Royal Rumble, uh, whatever, um, would it be more acceptable, do you think, to wrestling fans if in lieu of having blood on uh, your Dynamites or your Rampage, you save it? And there's blood only on pay-per-views. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if I would go strictly because I. I do think if you. I think if you made blood. Here's the issue, and this is. I'm going to break it down. I, Tony, I hope you're listening. Vince, certainly you would want to hear my advice as well. Well, Vince is a regular. I think Vince is a Patreon subscriber. Yeah, it's not like Vince hasn't been successful, so he needs to hear my advice uh, on what it is. If you make things important, people will care. And let's talk about titles. Shit, Jeff, when you and I were uh, young men with trim waistlines and full heads of hair, the world title only changed hands 
once every couple of years. I mean, Dory Funk Jr. had it for four years, Jack Briscoe two and a half, Harley Race, who held it several times, but it wasn't like it was changing every big card, whether it's a pay-per-view or whatever they call them now, special events. I don't know, but it, it's, it, it's been devalued. It, it's lost the importance and blood's the same thing. Look, you bleed every fucking match. Nobody cares. Make it so that it's important. Titles are exactly the same issue in my opinion. Yeah. And you know, I, I just, uh, you're absolutely a hundred percent right. Uh, what? Barry, it check, uh, that, uh, you know, it stops uh, meaning something once you do it too much. You know, yeah. uh, you you do blood once a month and people are going to go, oh, wow, a little bit of color there. And, uh, you know, it'll mean something. You do it, you know, on a nightly basis for something like that. You know, geez, if, if you want to turn into fucking Southwest Championship Wrestling, uh, you know, have John Boyd as your booker like they did back in the day. And literally, uh, yeah, you remember the what do you call Starcade? I think it was 80. Was it 84, 85, where I think they literally had a, they had blood in every single match on the card, you know, and it's just like, at some point, you're just kind of like, really? Why should I care anymore? You know, so I think, uh, this is a very fair comment. They do have too much blood. Uh, and let's move to number nine, pay per view length. Is that a problem for AEW? Yes or no? I, well, it's, it's certainly not for me because I think I've only seen two of their pay-per-views. <laughs> so I'm okay with however long, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't think so. And I'm going to tell you why. And I, I think so again, let's look at the difference between, uh, WWE and AEW. WWE puts on a pay-per-view and it's, uh, let's say the WrestleMania, which I think traditionally was two separate nights over the last few years. I don't know if it is this year. That's, in my opinion, that's way too much. And there was a lot of, filler you know i remember going back years ago and and when i would watch every wrestlemania and they would put shit i remember uh tyrus whatever the fuck his name was when he was in uh wwe and he would come out dancing with uh the uh you know naomi and the other i i don't remember any of their names but it was pure filler is what i'm trying to say and when you've got a mega card in some, which is what a pay-per-view should be. It should be the end-all, be-all of your promotion. It's a mega card. If you're putting filler in a mega card, there's just no reason and there's no purpose for it. By all accounts, again, I haven't seen the last pay-per-view with AEW, and I guess that is still a pay-per-view. I haven't seen it, but the reviews were great. Every match apparently was good. There was no filler. It was long, but if they're not feeding you a bunch of shit, why would you complain? It's like saying, you know, I, I went to the steakhouse and I ordered a, a 16 ounce steak and they brought me the 20 ounce at the same price. Why am I going to complain about that? Well, uh, okay. I will offer a counterpoint to that. Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut, but, uh, <laughs> I love if, it. If you, uh, the last pay per view that I purchased that was an AEW pay per view, I want to say it started, I don't know, 7 30, something like that. And, I recall not getting to bed to like maybe 1230 quarter to one. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, you know, right. At at some point, like really, uh, you don't need to have every single person on the card, have a spot on the card. You know, it's like, uh, we used to joke in South Florida and call it a Bobby Rogers show because, you know, you'd, you'd book, you know, 14 matches on a card at the friggin' bingo hall or the, you know, uh, the foreign legion hall. It's like, you don't need to have a card that full of people and, you know, you want to make this a special show, uh, something that you built to over a period of time. That doesn't mean you need to have like, you know, nine or 10 matches. You can have 
five or six and just have those five or six really mean something, you know, so that even the first match that starts the pay-per-view off, people are like, fuck, yeah, man, I'm going to be in my seat because I want to see that match. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you don't need to do like they used to do in, uh, I remember in Tennessee, they would start off where they would have two single matches, uh, you know, and then they do a tag match. And so basically the entire, the entirety of the show is like, you know, you're, you're talking about, what, uh, like four, maybe five or six guys on the entire card. You don't need to do that, but stretching it out to where it's almost four and a half, five hours is ridiculous. I believe because, uh, our old friend Ron Lemieux was, uh, was how old tech- is Ron? You keep calling him old friend. Is well, he like, I think is he he's that old? He's 72 now. I think that he makes is. Sense. Uh, you know, he's very old, but, uh, he was texting me and saying, Oh, this match is getting ready to go on. And I said, well, do me a favor. Just text me when the show's over. So I know how long it went. And I want to say he texted me like a little bit after, um, it was close to midnight. So this one wasn't like four and a half, five hours, but it was like maybe three hours, 45 minutes, somewhere in that ballpark. So they had cut it down somewhat, like maybe like half an hour, 45 minutes, uh, probably still too long. But I think certainly if he is listening to critics, I think Tony may have heard that complaint. Uh, that people are just like, what the fuck, dude? Come on, man. Uh, this is kind of ridiculous. Okay. Next up on our complaint list. <laughs> Barry, you're going to like this one. Uh, cause I, I am. Barry, a complaint is that there's not enough women's wrestling. Ah! <laughs> Go ahead. Comment on that. Uh, y- yeah. So there is. And, uh, I, you know, as I, as we watched last night, Taya Valkyrie has made her way to, uh, AEW and, you know, every so, and this is, uh, this is definitely not a judgment. I guess it is a judgment on her. Who am I trying to kid? Right. Uh, as I was watching it, she, her gimmick, I guess, is to dance to the ring. And then when she gets in the ring, did you, have you seen it yet, Jeff, or no? What the women's, uh, stuff? No, not the, just, well, just, I'm just using Taya Valkyrie, her debut last night. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that uh, they had now. What was her name in the WWE, or was she somewhere else? I forget. She so she's been. She was. Uh, she was Frankie Monet. That's it. You went. She was NXT, and I think may have come up to the main stage for like a week, and then she was cut. She's married to John Morrison, John Hennigan. Uh, but I now I it just, was her father the famous uh, Count DeMonet? That I don't. I'll defer to Lou. That's, on that's, that. a, that's a little. Uh, I, I think it was history of the world joke. Yes. Yeah. Count the money. <laughs> Count the money. Thank you. Thank you for the joke. One person did. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. But in any case, I, uh, I, it, I, as I'm going to pick on Taya Valkyrie for what I thought was embarrassing dancing, but I guess she got over because I believe that was her hometown last night. Regardless, sometimes there is too much women's wrestling, and they have some decent, compelling women. I, I think Jamie Hayter is great, uh, and I think she's doing a great job. Britt Baker certainly fills a role. Uh, I'm not a fan of Soraya at all. I, I'm glad they turned her heel because I hated her before. Now it just feels more natural. Very unlikable to me. I've also had the displeasure of meeting her once, and I got to tell you, I completely disliked her. Uh, just don't like her at all. Tony Storm, I think, is actually a decent woman's wrestler. Ruby Soho liked her, but I kind of feel with the booking, she's kind of dead in the water. Statlander, maybe my favorite, along with Jamie Hayter. But 
you know, it is too much. And I think Riho and boy, does Riho take a lot of shit from people. I, I just, I don't, and I don't want to pile on that. Seems like a good person. She's not even a terrible wrestler. I think she's about 80 pounds and five one. Uh, but if I never saw her again, I'd be absolutely fine. So to answer your question in a very long winded fashion, yeah, there, there's a little bit too much women's wrestling in AEW. Well, I will, I will say that this uh, comment would have been absolutely fair if they had included one word instead of not enough women's wrestling, if they had said not enough good women's wrestling. There you go. You know, because let's be honest, uh, the people that you mentioned, uh, uh, what, what do you call uh, your uh, Jamie Hayter, your Tony Storm? Th- those are I've watched their matches and, uh, you know, hey, these uh, these women, uh, Britt Baker, I've comment, you know, complimented before. Uh, I enjoy, you know, their matches. I enjoy the characters. But let's be honest, there are women that are in that, uh, let's just say that dressing room that really shouldn't be there. It's just they, they bring nothing to the fucking table. Uh, just because you were once in the WWE doesn't mean that you should be in AEW. Uh, you know, I, I know that I just read that, uh, uh, what do you call the, uh, the Bella twins? Is that, uh, their names, Barry? Yes. That they are now the Garcia twins. They've officially changed their names. And all I could think of was, Oh God, Tony, please don't friggin' bring these women in. I, and honestly, I have no idea if they're good or not. May, you know, I know they did some sort of biography. I see their biography in Barnes and Noble. And, and I'm just like, because I wasn't watching wrestling at that point. I'm like, who the fuck are these women? I don't know who they are. Uh, you know, if you're going to have women's, uh, a woman's crew, at least have women that are friggin' good, that know what the fuck they're doing in the ring, that can, perform the the maneuvers the moves uh you know do a promo do an angle all that kind of stuff don't have women that when you go out there and watch one of their matches you sit there and go oh this is not good you know you don't want to have that cringe worthy moment where someone tries to move and botches the move so much or it looks so completely fraudulent you know part of it, hey here's a here's a newsflash everybody pro wrestling is supposed to look in some form as if you're having a, a contest and if you're doing it and it looks like instead of doing it at the uh, standard of, you know, uh, 30 miles an hour, if you're doing it at 10 miles an hour, at some point, someone's going to go, yeah, this shit looks really bad. And that's my problem is that there are too many women in that dressing room that are wrestling at 10 miles an hour instead of the posted mile per hour, which, you know, the women that I did mention, uh, the Jamie haters, the, the Tony, uh, what do you call it, Tony Storm? There are women that know what the hell they're doing out there, and boy, they kind of stick out, you know, uh, like a rose in the garden there, if you will, because you know they're the ones that you kind of want to watch. Whereas the other ones, you're like, oh, geez, let's hit the fast forward, honey, because this shit just ain't getting it. Number seven, Rampage is not must see. <laughs> Rampage is not must see, and I got to say, initially. I watched every Rampage. And they're adding another show, by the way, Barry. Yeah, they're adding an, another show. Plus, they have Dark. I've never watched Dark in my life, so I wouldn't know about that. They're adding another show. Plus, they've got the behind-the-scenes show, which I have not watched, uh, which I think debuted, but I still haven't watched it. Uh, there's too much. Look, Rampage... I think if there was a positive for Rampage, and this would be going back a few months, some of the matches were actually good, though. You were getting, you weren't getting great angles per se. It's an hour with, you know, take out the commercials. I think it's 43 minutes or something like that, but, uh, you weren't getting great content except for a great 
match, a one-on-one or a two-on-two with it, the last few rampages that I've seen, and I've watched a few, it's almost, it, it's almost like filler. It's like, you know what? We'll give these guys a chance. We're not putting them on dynamite. We'll put them on here. For me, a lot that's lost with it. I like the aspect of live television, knowing that something can happen. Any, something could go wrong, right? Which makes it interesting in a sense. But, uh, Rampage to me strikes me as like one of the WWE's, uh, you know, like sideshows, like superstars and all that shit they were doing 20, 30 years ago. I just it? don't it see was, the reason to watch it. It was superstars, it. and what was the other show? Do you remember? I don't. Lou, do you remember what Main the other event? show? No, that was night. I no, don't know no. what it was. There were there was two syndicated shows. There was wrestling superstars, and but the other one was sort of like their B show. Superstars of Wrestling and Wrestling Challenge. Challenge. Or? It was Wrestling Challenge that was kind of their B show. So thank you, Lou. Uh, yeah, no. uh they have completely fucking dropped the ball when it came to Rampage because they started uh it, it's it's like the stuff they put on after Dynamite is over with uh initially when the show first started and they started creating new stars like that's where they put Hook and Hook first started really getting over uh and, and gee what a surprise Hook has sort of lost his uh his mojo there with the crowd. Uh, they started doing this with, uh, Orange Cassidy and the best friends and all this kind of stuff. You know, there is, they've now trained the audience that this show is not that big a deal. And if the show's not that big a deal, then you're going to get people who are not going to give a shit. And the only people that are going to watch it are people that are wrestling crazy and will watch literally anything. Uh, you know, the people that will post. <clears throat> see if you uh, know what I'm doing here, Barry. Uh, the people that will post on uh, Facebook, hey, I'm watching this show, and literally they get nobody that likes their comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <I laughs> see what you, you did there. Okay, yeah, I see you. what you did. But, uh, you know, so uh, those kind of people will watch Rampage, but really give the people a reason to watch the show. You know, something that was pointed out last night during a segment, MJF has never fucking been on Rampage. You know, okay, well, if you want to save him for the main show, whatever, but you need to create somebody that appears on Rampage the way you did with Hook that gives people a reason to watch Rampage. And, you know, God knows you've got enough people in that dressing room and on that roster to where you can give somebody a spot, you know, whether, you know, for a while there, they had Samoa Joe on there and Samoa Joe and and like uh, Wardlow and Claudio and those guys like that. Give them a slot where they're put over as really fucking big deals on that show. So when they uh, appear on Dynamite, it kind of means something, you know, and maybe uh, give those guys, you know, have Jungle Boy or, or you know, somebody like that uh, appear on Rampage to give the people a reason to watch Rampage. You know, God knows Chris Jericho, take him off Dynamite one week and put him on Rampage, you know, with the, with the other guys from the JAS. And I know they were the, the lesser JAS guys were on Rampage last night at the time of this. But yeah, no, it definitely is not must see. That is a very valid point. Uh, number six, the in ring style. The complaint being, uh, according to the article here, uh, there's no denying that it's vastly different from that of the WWE. For some people, that is exactly what they want to see as the fast paced style is similar to the independent scene. However, for others, it is too over the top with wrestlers constantly kicking out of moves that most people would consider to be finishers and that can take people out of the matches. So, Barry, is that a fair comment? I don't think so. 
it, is it different than the WWE? Yeah, sure. The, the wrestling style can be very different. However, you could watch. Why do they other, have to be exactly like the WWE? And they don't. And that's yeah. a great point. But the other aspect is if you watch a lot of the, the big events, the, what we used to call the pay-per-views, the same shit occurs. You know, guys are kicking out of finishers 20 times. And look, we'll see this. I, I don't know if that's fair. Could they tone it down a little bit? Maybe that's where I would go, but I, I don't know. Yeah, you know, the, the only thing I will say, uh, I don't agree with their comments about the ring style, okay, but I will say their, their comment about, uh, you know, the over the top big moves and people kick out of it, I think that's very fair commentary because, you know, I, I mean, geez, how many times can somebody get hit with a fucking pile driver, uh, whether it's in the ring, on the edge of the ring, on the floor, on the ramp, and they still fucking kick out. I mean, come on. But, you know, at this point, like, it's like you're kind of waiting for someone just to pull a gun out. Boom. Uh, and then, you know, like, uh, the guy's lying on the one, two, and he kicks out. I mean, come on. You know, like, uh, and one of the things that really irritates me is nobody can win a match unless they hit their signature move. Come on. When's the last time you saw a match won by, a, you know, a roll up or, or something like that or just, uh, you know, something that's not their designated finishing spot. That That is something that I think is really accurate and irritates the fuck out of me. So uh number five reasons why people hate AEW, Uberry, the CM Punk controversy. What say you? I don't, there's still a large portion of people that believe that it's all a work and that CM Punk is going to return. Apparently he's injured. And when that injury heals, he's going to find the right moment and he's going to return and he'll be with FTR and they'll wind up going after the elite. I don't know if that's the case. There is a chance it could be at the same time. I, I don't know that AEW handled the situation terribly it with the exception of you know cm punk coming in in when there's the whole media scrum and then cm punk comes and unloads about shit that's taking place behind the scenes that's not in the public eye and look they did it again on tv last night right where they were talking and i think it was darby allen that brought it up and saying i love aew and and the biggest problem that we have is guys in the back complaining about it and MJF obviously is one of those guys. At some point, uh, AEW's got to move on from, you know, the whole trying to blur the line between reality and what storyline is because it's, I think it's confusing to fans at some point. And then at some point we get burned out of it. We just don't give a shit. So I, I don't know. I, I wonder if this, uh, the CM Punk, uh, versus the uh, elite, let's just call it that. If that is not AEW's, whether they intended it to be this way or not, this is sort of their Brett Sean thing, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's like uh, the people couldn't get past the whole Brett Sean thing. You're either in Brett's camp or you're in Sean's camp, uh, you know? And I think in this case, you're either with, you know, uh, Kenny and the Young Bucks or you're completely with CM Punk. There's no like middle ground. I don't know that uh, it was necessarily a, a work, uh, because, uh, I, I don't know, but 
do I think that at some point he's going to come back? Uh, actually, I believe he will because quite frankly, I don't think he's got anywhere else to go. Uh, and you know, you and I have commented before on this and said, you know, the guy needs to fucking say, Hey, look, we're never going to be buds and go out and have dinner together, but we can fucking make money off of this because you know, uh, either it is legitimately real and people believe it, or we've gotten people to believe it's legitimate re- real and you know, fucking make money off it. That's what the wrestling business is supposed to be. Because I can tell you 40 fucking years ago, if this shit happened, you got to wonder, you know, if this happened on Eddie Graham's watch or Bill Watts's watch, uh, you know, he would have fucking fired him. You know, like all of you guys, get the fuck out of my dressing room. I'll get somebody else. Or, you know, if it's somebody you couldn't fucking lose, uh, the guy that wasn't the bigger deal, so long, farewell, Avita and goodbye, you know? And maybe that's what, uh, you know, Tony Khan should have done. I don't know. But I actually believe that at some point uh, in the relatively near future that you are going to see CM Punk make an appearance. Uh, he's going to show up, quote, unquote, unannounced. You know, the, the intro music's going to hit. You're right. He's going to walk out there with FTR and they're going to challenge the elite. And, uh, by the way, I'll be all in for it because I think that'll be pretty fucking compelling. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it'll be interesting television. Of course, lost in all of that as well. CM Punk isn't the same guy he was no. eight years ago. And no. he's, and now another, and I think he's had two severe injuries since he's been with AEW. Clearly this guy shouldn't be in the ring. I mean, it's the best way to say it. Do you love and respect what he did years ago in the Federation? Maybe. I don't know. That's up to you. But at the same time, at this point, I, uh, you know, there's, there's probably, if there's a hundred people on that roster, there's probably 75 or 80 who are just as good, if not better than CM Punk currently. The next one on this listing, we're counting backwards from 10 to 1 at number 4, lack of rules. The article goes to say rules in professional wrestling are crucial. Even though they're meant to be stretched and at times broken for the sake of a good storyline, there must be some form of basic foundations that fans can expect. That is something that AEW has struggled with, as there have been a lot of confusion at times. This is particularly true during tag team matches, where there will often be no form of rules which creates chaos. What say you, Barry? Fair or not fair? I don't know. That's you know, if you're looking for logic from professional wrestling, <laughs> good luck. You know, <laughs> you have bigger issues if that's where well, you're you trying know, to get your logic. I, I think so. just just to uh, you know fairly discuss the uh, the comments here. One of the things that I think uh, you know where they talk about the tag matches is. I think it seems like there's a different set of rules, uh, especially where the Lucha guys are concerned. Because let's be totally honest, yes. L- Lucha matches have like a completely different set of rules yep. than, you know, like a, a CWF match or a Mid-South match. And so like for someone who's not familiar with Lucha, you know, when you, when you see this stuff going on and you sit there and you say, what the fuck are they doing? Like, uh, there, there was no tag, uh, you know, or, or there's, and also there's way too much use of the blind ref. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that's just strictly an AEW thing or if that's just, that's the way fucking wrestling is at this point, uh, in 2023. Uh, next up, number three, Barry, frantic booking. Article goes to say, when Tony Khan is on point, his booking can be perfect with storylines such as CM Punk and MJF being an example of that. However, there are other occasions when things go uh, can end up going south, whether it's stories dragging on way too long or things being cut too short completely. The booking can be frantic. It is something that has put many fans off over the years as they have attempted to get into the product, only to find it difficult to follow along with for long periods of time. What say you? 
Yeah, his bookings all over the board. It makes no sense. One week you've got a guy like Wardlow who's super hot. The next thing you know, he's not on television for a while, not even injured, but guys that get pushed. You know, you go back to, uh, a couple of years ago and Daniel Garcia was, he was on TV every week, but essentially losing every week. And, but they were using him. And now that he's part of the JAS, we don't see him as frequently. The other two guys, 2.0, I think they were called at the time. These guys were wrestling like literally every week, and now you don't see him. It's just, it, it's like guys will be in Miro. Miro's a great example. There's got to be a real story there with uh, Miro as to why they aren't using him. But there's, it, it just appears it's disjointed. Maybe he, he cuts bait and runs way too quickly. I don't know. Uh, you know, he gets, seems to give up, uh, on guys quickly and it doesn't make any sense to me. I know that a lot of people, I think Jim Cornette is one of those. Uh, Jeff, any update on Jim Cornette appearing on, on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, by the way? Uh, I've heard nothing, but thank you for asking. Absolutely. At, at some point, I believe Jim Cornette's been calling for, uh, in saying that Tony does need help when it comes to booking. I, that's, you know, Helen Keller could tell you that. That is the most obvious statement I may have ever heard. Well, let, let me just uh, chime in there uh, on that. I think Tony does have help in the booking because I think it's pretty obvious uh, of the guys that are on TV every single week that you and I have talked about. Uh, obviously, those guys are either helping with the booking or they're in his ear. Uh, you know, I mean, let's be honest. There are guys in that dressing room that have more influence over Tony than others, whether it's the Bucks, whether it's Omega, whether it's Jericho, whoever. And it's not a huge surprise that those are the guys that are on every single week. You know, we, we've talked about how, uh, yeah, well, maybe not so much uh, Omega and the Bucks. Uh, they weren't on for a while because of, uh, I think Omega might have had some visa situation or something like that. But, you know, like Jericho, I love the character of Chris Jericho, okay? Uh, I, he's funny on commentary when he comes out there and, and cuts a promo. God knows he's really good. But what is he, like 52, 53 years old now? The body has got a definite sag to it, okay? Uh, Chris Jericho as the leader of the group, I got no problem with. Uh, if he wants to stand outside the ring with those guys, I think he absolutely has a spot and can give those guys the rub. But I'm sorry, I, you know, other than last night when it's his fucking hometown, okay? You give the guy the big rub and he comes out and gets all the uh, applause and stuff like that. I get that. Uh, but I, I just don't think we need to see Chris Jericho wrestling every single week. And I think that's really a detriment. And I think that's a case of a guy maybe having too much influence over Tony, you know? Uh, I, I think Tony is one of these guys. He's like a new age booker where he listens to people you know, who have ideas and stuff like that. He doesn't completely shut these guys out, but he needs to open up uh, that window and let some fresh air in and let some fresh ideas in. And I don't know that he always d uh, does that because he's got these guys in his ear and they're not allowing the fresh air to come in. What say you, Bear? Yeah, I would yeah. agree with it. Here's the, the crazy part. We're actually uh – we're agreeing with what what's on this list a lot. Yeah, like, yeah, we're no, not yeah. Even, even though we're supporters, we're going, yeah, okay, you got a point, right? Like, Well, and uh, getting to number two, another comment that we've both made uh, on numerous occasions, uh, the article goes to state number two, too many wrestlers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> how do we? I don't think we can sit there and say, no, that's not true. How do you uh, dispute too many, that? Yeah. Too many wrestlers and too many wrestlers that aren't being used. 
And the incredible thing is, Barry, you know, we just got done talking about the different shows that they have. They're creating a new program now. They've got shows on TBS, TNT, YouTube, all these different shows. So why is it that uh, we get the feeling that there are guys that aren't fucking being used to the point where, and I'm sitting there, I was trying to think, and I'm like, oh, what the fuck is the guy's name uh, that was uh, in the trio with uh, Ray Phoenix and uh, and Penta? What's the guy? Uh, the oh, guy? Uh, where, yeah, where's he been? Pack. Pack, yeah. Who I, I fucking love the guy. He, he's an incredible worker, but yes. like, where the fuck has Pack been? You know, haven't seen him in a especially you know, for, because they were they were teasing some sort of either yeah, deal turn and they compl- they completely, or breakup. There yeah, you they go. completely fucking forgot about that whole idea, you know. 100% right. And, uh, yeah, they, and like Wardlow and his ponytail and his, uh, you know, how it correlated to his dad that he missed. They've kind of forgotten about that. Anyway, uh, the final one, Barry Rose, is this true or not? As my dog uh, is making noise behind me. Number one, number one, yes, he's a good boy. Number one, too much focus on wrestling. What say you? Too much focus on wrestling. Okay, I'll read you the article. This or okay. what they say in the article. This might seem like a ridiculous reason to not watch a weekly wrestling show, but for some people is a legitimate reason for not viewing the product. This is because people have been conditioned to WWE style over the years, which has a focus on storyline and entertainment via promos and backstage segments. While AEW does have some of those segments spliced in, the fact is that the main focus is on the in-ring product. That's one of AEW's greatest strengths for many people, but some fans opt to not watch simply because of that. Fair point or not, Bear? What do you think? I don't know. That that seems like you're 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 stretching it out a little bit too. Look, those audiences are vastly different too, and I, I think a lot of this uh, when you hear people that hate AEW. One of the things I hear is that they don't necessarily even hate AEW. They hate the fans. They hate the fans because they're uh, defensive, passionate, and I think it's vice versa. I, you know, I think you could say that about WWE fans as well. But when you look, and I, I thought about this last night, and they they cater to their fans for good or bad. They that's exactly what they're doing. If they want to grow a larger audience, this is not the way to do it. With it, the people who like AEW that go to the live shows appear to be having a great time. These people are, you know, the, the chants are all there. It, it, it's almost like this inclusive club, and and that's something that I actually like about it. So let me uh, – I was having a discussion with uh, my old friend, brother Jeff Steele, uh, the other day, and we were talking about AEW, and he made a comment. You tell me whether or not you think this is fair uh, and it goes to the number one thing here about uh, too much focus on wrestling. His thought was that AEW spends so much time catering to a certain aspect of the, uh, the population and more particularly the wrestling population. And that's the, uh, let's just say men, uh, let's say 18 to 49, maybe, maybe 18 to 59. But, you know, with all the blood and and other stuff that goes on, are they in some way, because they do that, and because they do focus so much on wrestling, are they, in a sense, do you believe, in some ways alienating the kid viewer and the female or potential female viewer? What do you think? 
I think so. I mean, again, what I just said, right? They are catering to the people that at times, if they're not even watching at home, they're catering to the people in the building. That makes for a great environment for the television show because I, I, you know, how many times have in, not, not you, Jeff, you don't watch the WWE, but how many times can you watch a Monday night raw where the audience doesn't give a shit and they're sitting on their hands? And with AEW, that crowd is fucking rabid every single time. Again, the bigger picture is they're not growing their audience on a weekly basis. There's nobody well, and that's, on. And that's my point is, do you, okay, let's just uh, put it in these terms. If you try to do something to, uh, to broaden your audience and to have something that will attract either uh, the female fan or a, a kid's fan, like, like, okay, people fucking lost their mind in 83 and 84 when Vince started making his product more kid-friendly, okay? And we'll get into this discussion in our match of the week because it's, I, I think, something that that is a fair comment. But uh, should they do that? But at the same time, if they do that, do they risk alienating their main base by trying to make it more uh, palpable, Excellent use of the word palpable. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, to a, a, a fem- potential female viewer or somebody who might want to bring their kids. Because let's be honest, there's a certain percentage of people out there that if they see blood on AEW every week, if they see somebody, you know, uh, John Moxley sticking a fork in somebody's head or, you know, if they see, uh, you know, somebody biting a bloody forehead, are they really going to want to bring their kids to that? That's the question that I think potential viewers might be asking. Do you think that's fair? I do. I, I definitely think it's fair. Yeah. All right. So now, because we are nothing if not what? We're givers. We're givers. We have a bonus question that I've come up with based uh-huh. on something that uh, – actually, I have two bonus questions, okay? Well, we're really givers here, Barry. The first bonus question that I have, do you think – or I should say, who is more delusional in their fandom? <laughs> okay. Is it people who hate AEW or people who love AEW? What say you? Ooh, there's a tough one right there. Every once in a while, I throw you. Yeah, that's a good one. That, that would be a, uh, my opinion, that's going to be a coin flip on that one. I, I'm tempted to say one, and then after giving it some thought for like four seconds, I'm tempted to say the other side. I don't know if I can pick a winner in that one. You know, I, I think there are people that are very open and vocal about, you know, I hate AEW, you know, I hate the Young Bucks, I hate Kenny Omega, I hate Tony Khan, whatever. The people that really support it, I don't see them as being as outwardly vocal. Oh, fucking AEW is the shit, man. WWE, fuck them. You, you don't see as much of that. Good point, right? You know, so that that's the only thing I'll say about that. But I think you're right. It's about a 50-50 split. So the second question is, and this is based on something that happened last night. And it was uh, something that was actually brought up uh, by one of our Arcadian brothers, uh, Brian Solomon, and it was addressing the situation last night with MJF when he came to the ring to uh, celebrate uh, his second bar mitzvah. Brian's comment was, is the whole uh, Max using his uh, Judaism uh, and Basically throwing the, uh, you know, the bar mitzvah and he's wearing the yarmulke and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and he's got the guys lifting him up in the chair and everything. Is he using his Jewish faith as a way to get heel heat? And if you think he is, is that stepping over a line? Do you think? 
So the answer, and I actually thought about that last night, the answer is, yeah, he is using his Judaism to get heel heat. What's happening is, though, it it doesn't appear that people, at least the AE audience that is in the arena, it doesn't appear like like they're buying the bait, becoming anti-Semitic over the whole situation. Is it crossing a line? It's close to it. And I say because if something happens, if uh, if there's a guy wearing a yarmulke that's in the stands, and he goes outside and a bunch of people, a bunch of anti-Semites jump him and call him a filthy Jew and beat the shit out of him because they hate Max, you know, MJF, you know, and I realize how ridiculous that sounds when I say it. But let's be honest, something like that could happen. That's when the apologies are going to start. And that's when is it would be like if uh, and look, they've done it in wrestling, right? African-Americans. And if they came out, and they it just I. I don't think anything good can come from it. I like the fact that he embraces his Judaism. That's great. I I think that it's potentially opening up a door for a very serious situation because the first time you've got somebody that's unhinged. And Jeff, have you ever heard of unhinged wrestling fans? Never, never. So the first time you've got an unhinged wrestling fan and he's inebriated or there's a a small group of them and there's the guy with uh, the yarmulke and the uh, I forget what they're called. The curl Jew, Jew, Lou, <laughs> Lou the Jew. I, I, I have to, I have to go now. So I, you guys have a good day. What? Yeah, what did you little, lost? Harold Strassler is I, Harold is canceling the Patreon. What are the little curls called to the side? Is it well, the, the, the? Oh, you mean the the. They, on the sides of the head there, the yeah, Orthodox yeah. Jews. Uh, Payas, I believe. Payas. I was calling it Pesach, which I know wasn't it. Payas. But honestly, if, if they have a, let's do it this way. If they have a live show in Brooklyn on a Wednesday night where there is a large congregation of, uh, Hasidic Jews and they decide to go and then people are drunk and all of a sudden MJF is building up all this hatred towards Jews. Something bad is, has the potential to happen. I'm, and I'm really surprised that Tony Khan and or Warner Brothers hasn't actually thought about that, too. Because, again, the potential for disaster is huge, in my opinion. Well, and, you know, the, the other thing, and I'm going to take it to an even more extreme. Uh-oh. Uh, what if you have to counteract this guy who's reveling in his Judaism and, uh, you know, openly displaying his Jewish faith. What happens if you get uh, the crazed, drunken fan that decides to go to an AEW event wearing some sort of uh, clothing or displaying something that is a sign that is not allowed to be displayed, let's just say, in the country of Germany at this point, but he's doing it as a reaction and he holds up like a, a swastika or something just to say, you know, oh, here's it. And, and I'm not, I, you know, I realize that's very far fetched. We're I, taking I it to an extreme. Yes. Right. But I, I'm just right. saying what happens then? Like all of a sudden, you know, he's out there and, and, you know, hey, I'm Max Friedman and I'm Jewish and I'm proud of it. And I'm going to have a second bar mitzvah and I'm pissed because I got thrown into a cake. But then you see some idiot in the fucking audience who's holding up a fucking swastika or something yeah. like that. And all of a sudden, you know, I mean, it's just like, you can take the next progression, and you might think that sounds ridiculous, but let's remember we have wrestling promoters out there, uh, and I realize I'm going back in a ways. Uh, you know, Vince brought in Butch Reed in the mid-'80s and had him bleach his hair blonde because he thought that would be a heat-getting thing for a black guy to have blonde hair. Bill Watts, uh, and I understand people are very, you know, he's a polarizing figure at this point, but, uh, you know, I can remember that Bill Watts put Dark Journey 
with Dick Slater, uh, because in part because, oh, wow, uh, a white guy having a black valet, uh, you know, that's really edgy shit, you know. Sometimes that edgy shit works, and sometimes that edgy shit crosses the line that it shouldn't cross. And I really uh, I agree with you. I worry and wonder if Max Friedman – uh, as much as I love the character, it's a great fucking character. I enjoyed the skit last night. It was good stuff. Uh, you know, uh, but I wonder if they're getting real close to that fucking edge, Barry. I, and that's probably the best way because when I looked at it last night, it was at times extremely comical. It wasn't something that you, you could take. And that's, I'm assuming that would be the defense that, uh, AEW would have, whether Max, Tony Khan or somebody else is that, look, we, we did it as a comical. They, they put him in the chair. They lifted the chair, which is typical at every mitzvah that's out there. It, it just, but there's something about it that just comes off as wrong. And it, you know, there's, if, if they were using any religion, my God, if they were using a, a Muslim religion in the times that we live right now, we know what could happen, right? Anti, uh, anti-Semitic behavior is at an, at a, at a high over, you know, over like the last 20 or 30 years. It's currently at a high. And I, I just, I, I, there's so much wrong with it. It's very short-sighted. And the truth is, we've seen Max do some great shit over the last almost four years in AEW. At one point, he was the best interview, the best promo guy in the business. Maybe still is. But he doesn't need this. You know, he, he doesn't need to be doing it. And again, I don't see anything positive coming out of it. So, yeah, is it crossing a line? I think it's getting extremely close, Jeff. Very always a good time to talk to official friend of the show, Steve Kern, I believe, making his 47th appearance on our show, Barry. What do you think? 47th, 48th. It's somewhere in the neighborhood. Steve, how are you doing today, my man? I'm, I'm good until you said that. I've been on that many times. I must be really old. <laughs> Youngest guest ever in the history of this fine podcast. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah, there you go. So uh, part of the reason we're having Steve on today uh, is to not only promote his appearance at the beautiful CWF Legends Fan Fest in June. Uh, where's that taking place again, Barry? I know Barry loves That's going to happen at the Marriott Residence Inn in the beautiful Tampa suburb of Lutz. It's happening on June the 3rd. Steve Kern will be there, Jerry Briscoe, Ken Patera, Nord the Barbarian, Gary Michael Capetta, the Glamour Girls, Leilani Kai and Judy Martin, and Jeff, just going to announce it now. Oh, put it out there, brother. Might as well. We're announcing it. We have also got women's wrestling legend Joyce Grable making a very rare fan fest appearance. Super excited about this one. But having Steve on with us today, Jeff, come on. Have you read his book yet? Well, I was just going to say before we get to Steve's book, which, by the way, is a sellout on Amazon. Is, Steve a, is he a bigger get for a guest? Than Joyce Grable, because I, you know, it's like 50 50 for me, Barry. I don't know. But anyway, I'm, that being I'm going to tell you this, Jeff. Wow. And I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. And Jeff, I, you have been to every CWF Legends Fan Fest that we've had. And Steve check. was at, check, exactly. Steve was not at our last event, uh, but he was at the event before that. And if you remember, he had, actually, he was at the last event. He was with his great friend Ian Douglas. Uh, and they were they were at a table, and Ian had copies of his latest book prior to Steve's book, which is, I believe, Bahamian Rhapsody, which is the history of pro wrestling in the Bahamas. But Steve, even though he's been with us, I think, four or five times, 
always has the longest lines at the fan fest. So that really says something, Jeff, right? Yeah, it's like when he was. Only cost me ten dollars a fan to get him to line up. <laughs> I was going to say, just like uh, back when he was in Memphis and Florida, and all the ladies were standing in line to get an autograph, he always had the longest line, Barry. That's what I heard. Uh, I think it's because of Stan when we were in Memphis, but, but I'll go. <laughs> anyway, Steve wanted to yeah. uh, come come on and tell us about his book, which is called. The Current Chronicles, Volume 1, The Fabulous Wrestling Life of Steve Kern. Uh, it's by Steve and, uh, as he said, his friend Ian Douglas. Uh, shout out to Ian. Uh, so, Steve, tell yeah. us a little bit about how this book came about. Uh, you know, other than the fact that you've had a, a rather interesting uh, run through your wrestling career, what was the genesis of the idea for this book? Well, it kind of got sparked by Brian Blair. Brian Blair and I are really close friends. I mean, I've got I've got so many buddies living here in the Tampa Bay area and the Clearwater area and everything. But Brian and I live pretty close together. And Ian had done his book, and he told me, he "said You know, you should write a book." He calls me Speedo. I've got about a thousand nicknames, and Brian calls me Speedo. So he says, "Speedo, you need to do a book." And I'm going, Brian, it'd just be another wrestling book. I mean, you know, I got a whole library full of them because I'm in most of them. Somebody referred to me somehow or another, and then they gave me one of their books. But <clears throat> I just felt like one thing that I learned in the wrestling business is out of sight is out of mind for the new and up-and-coming fans. In other words, they don't get a chance to witness you. They don't have any interest in you. Not a whole lot of them go back to nostalgia and look at the past. Now, it's gotten really popular in the last maybe 10 years. So uh, Brian was saying, you know, arguing with me. And so I just felt like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got about as much sense to write as a third grader. I mean, you know, and, and then plus, I was worried about my memory. Because when you encompass 44 years in that, that industry, that's a long time. And to try to retract back through, every time we'd start on a subject, I'd get carried away talking and jump to another subject. And before I knew it, I was remembering all these things that I had forgotten. So it was kind of a project, but I'm, I've enjoyed it. The only problem I had was 44 years you can't put in one book. I mean, you know, it's we're, we're only going like to 1987 in this book, and that's the end of the fabulous ones. And then the Skinner and the agent and the owning FCW and all of the developmental and the talent and stuff like that coming hopefully next time. But we can only get so much in there. I mean, you know, without out dragging it out too long, it's like 400 pages. Yeah. So what, what I liked, and I, you know, Steve, I, I've known you for several years and I thought I knew a, a, a lot about your career, but as I'm reading the book and I'm going through it, uh, learning about your training with Hiro Matsuda was interesting. But the, the fact that you consider Jack Briscoe to be your true wrestling mentor, and I know I can speak for Jeff when I say this, to us, Jack Briscoe was really the reason I think we gravitated into professional wrestling and became fans. What was it like having seen a, a real professional like Jack and then all of a sudden you're sitting underneath the learning tree, actually learning from that man. Well, you know, it's funny you say it like that, but 
in those days, being a regionalized territory meant you were on the road seven days a week and you were, we were wrestling in a different town every week. I mean, every night, but it was 52 times a year. You went to those same cities and riding with some of the guys that I rode with, some of them were old enough to be my grandpa and some were really interested. You're talking about Jerry Briscoe there, Steve? <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> I'm talking about I'm talking about even farther up, like the great Malenko. I mean, you know, and and guys that I had imitated in high school. I mean, you know, I grew up with a lot of guys that ended up in the wrestling business down in here in Tampa, and we used to imitate. I used to imitate the great Malenko, and then I got to ride with him. And I was so excited thinking he's going to tell me some great story. He got in the car and fell asleep right away. And he slept all the way to Miami, which is 250 miles. And I didn't hear one story. And then I'm going like, how can I keep from riding with him again? And I mean, you know, everyone was an experience, but riding with Jack and Jerry, I mean, you know, without being ribbed, I mean, they ribbed me to death when I was young. But without being ribbed, I mean, you know, I learned a lot. And Jack was, you know, he was, he was more mild temperament. Gerald, when he was younger, he was, he was pretty stiff. So if you said anything out of line, he put you in your place. But at the same time, being a naive kid, you know, that's easy to do. So anyway, I always, I always always say to Gerald, how come your brother's so much taller than you? And I didn't realize that would piss him off. <laughs> well, after a while, I got it. I mean, you know, he's not that much taller. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, okay, I get it. But, you know, Jack was a stud. And growing up here in Tampa, of course, watching the show every Saturday and then Sunday, I mean, you know, if you're going to pattern yourself after somebody, you want to pattern yourself out of the biggest hero on the show, and that was who Jack Bisco was. His promos were the same as pretty much any babyface promos, except for Dusty. Dusty was a genius, but um, Jack's were, you know, you had to watch what you said back then. And what I mean was, you know, like Gordon Soley was such a straight guy um, announcer, he'd lead you into something and then just let you wander until he'd pull you back out. But you had to think about everything that came out of your mouth, which was impossible almost as a baby face. You had to not, if you had an opponent, like let's say I'm wrestling Joe LaDuke. I couldn't say anything about a bald guy, a fat guy or whatever, because I'm insulting half of the audience. <laughs> and you couldn't do that as a baby face. And Jack was just, when he talked, he was just straightforward. And it was kind of like, well, I'm going to give 100% and may the best man win. Which, to me, until I got to be Skinner, I had a hard time with because it, they, the interviews, watching what you said and having your name represent you, it kind of limited you. It wasn't until I got to be Skinner that I had fun with promos and stuff. And, of course, I wasn't myself then. I was a, depicted as a wild alligator poacher out of the Everglades. So when Vince actually set me up for that part. He goes, well, Steve, did you see the movie Deliverance? And I'm going, yeah, I saw it. And he says, I want you to be one of those guys. And I'm thinking Burt Reynolds, right? <laughs> I was cute. I was really cute. I mean, you know, I was one of the fabulous ones. I'm going, wait a minute. Must be Burt Reynolds, right? And he looks at me and he goes, nah, wrong guy. 
one of the two guys in the woods with Ned Beatty that says, hey, boy, he got a right pretty mouth. And I'm going, <laughs> well, at least I'm he going, didn't want you to be Ned Beatty. <laughs> Thank God. Well, right. Yeah, poor Ned Beatty, huh? How about his yeah. career? That's the only thing he was remembered for. Hey, weren't That's you true. the guy in the woods with the movie Deliverance? <laughs> so, yeah, could be worse. I mean, you could you could volunteer to be Doink the Clown, too, like I made a mistake of doing one time, too, and you end up. Nobody knows you after John Cena as Steve Kern, Fabulous Ones, Gator Kern, um, whatever, Skitter. Nah. But you say Doink, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's not who I wanted to be remembered for. <laughs> so, Let me ask you, as we were uh, getting ready to, uh, to call you today to record, I started uh, thinking to myself, of wrestling related questions because we've talked to you before that I've never asked you that I always right. wondered. And, and so here's something that popped into my head. Uh, hopefully it's a halfway intelligent question. Uh, most of mine aren't. As you look back in the two tag teams that you were a part of that are, of course, best remembered was your, uh, your tag team was with Mike Graham and your tag team, as you mentioned, with Steve uh, or with Stan Lane. So right. tell me with those two teams, Tell me what was better about your team with Mike Graham and tell me what was better uh, with your team with Stan Lane than, you know, in other words, what were you better with Mike Graham than with Stan Lane and what were you better with Stan Lane than you were with Mike Graham? What do you, what do you think? Okay. About that? Well, I can, I can kind of like, you know, give you an idea of that whole thing because it, first of all, you're talking about two totally different areas and I taught a lot of guys in the wrestling business and it, it kind of like a lot of the things I'm a dinosaur when it comes to teaching, because that I don't believe in rehearsing. I don't believe in memorization. I believe in going out and trying to do your best to get the audience emotionally involved and take them along on that trip. Good versus evil. And when I was with Mike Graham, it was a very strict NWA style in Florida which also carried me through to the Carolinas, also carried me through to Georgia and even Japan. But when the minute I stepped over the line to going into Tennessee, the whole style of the business that I had grown up in had changed. And the Tennessee territory did more entertainment value. I mean, you know, there well, I used to call them midget high spots. I mean, you know, all of a sudden they wanted me to do midget high spots. And I come out of Florida and Georgia and the Carolinas, and I'm going, wait, we don't do major high spots. I said, well, here in Tennessee, you do. And then Bill Dundee was one of the first guys to smarten me up, said, you're too, you're too straight of a guy. He says, you need to get more loose. You need to have more fun. You need to enjoy it a little bit more. And also entertain the audience. Make them laugh. And when the heel cuts you off, then they'll get pissed because they're not laughing anymore. So it took a while to adapt, but you can't change a territory by what they're educated to see in all that, all those years and put it in your style. Cause it's like sitting a uh, round peg in a square hole. So I learned to adapt. I became a chameleon. Stan Lane and I, we were more on the entertainment side and it was a perfect thing. I mean, you know, the fabulous ones, it really was the timing. And that's what has to do with a lot of opportunities in wrestling is the timing timing was mtv had just started doing music videos on television jerry jarrett was a genius and he was the one that created the fabulous ones 
he was the one that came up with the idea of doing music videos. Now, Stan Lane was a big-time music fanatic. I mean, he had a collection of LPs, and I guess that's what they are, vinyl records, and he could sing every song. And, and he had a radio disc jockey voice. And so he would come up with ideas from the current hits that were out. I mean, Michael Jackson beat it. I mean, you know, Billy Squire, Everybody Wants You, um, ZZ Top, Sharp Dressed Man. And then we'd fill in the stuff. And then when Jarrett would have an idea, we'd throw that in there too. So it was a combination of ideas when we did the videos. But, you know, I had students later on in my my career showed me pictures of fabulous ones and said, hey, coach, these pictures of you and Stan are kind of edgy. <laughs> and I go, well, you know who we were selling these to? We we're selling these to women and girls. How many men buy pictures of wrestling men? I mean, you know, you're, you're marketing to, to women. And that's what we, we sold our pictures based around later. I didn't know later on they would come bite me in the butt. <laughs> it's like having a mullet when you're in high school and now you're bald. I mean, you know, you're going, uh, well, Jeff, wait a minute. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you had to just kind of like, Barry, Barry was just uh, so about the fact that I actually had hair in high school. So, you know, <laughs> yes. well, I did too. I don't, I, the only place now it grows is out of my ears and my nose. I mean, you know, I don't know what the deal is. So, but, that's not anything that I was really ever worried about. I th- mine kind of lasted till I was in my forties. And by the time I got the Skinner, I wasn't really trying to look good anymore. <laughs> I, was, I was kind of on a down slope, just anything, whatever works and they pay me, I'm doing from now on. So. Well, well, I tell you what, let me, let me just ask you, uh, since you were talking about okay. uh, Jerry Jarrett and we, uh, we recently lost Jerry, you mentioned that you uh, considered Jerry to be a, a genius in wrestling promotion. Can you just uh, sure. tell us some uh, some memories that, you know, I mean, obviously we probably could spend about three hours talking about your memories of, of Jerry, but, you know, you, you got the news uh, about Jerry and besides the, uh, you know, the loss to uh, the whole wrestling community, just uh, some memories of, uh, of Jerry Jarrett and what he meant to your career. Well, Jerry Jarrett was, was a shot in the arm for me so far as finding a spot. I heard Dutch Mantel say one time about Steve Kern, he goes, Steve Kern was a great hand, and he was, you know, he anywhere on that card, Steve Kern would get the job done. But to put people in seats, it wasn't very easy for Steve Kern to do that by himself. It took that tag team of him and Stan Lane that created a magic. Well, he's right, and I always knew that. I mean, you know, he, you, your ego wants you to brag about how great you are, but to me, I was terrified to be in the main event. My first 10 years, because the first thing they say to you when you come in the dressing room, if there's nobody in the crowd, it's like, uh, who's in the last match? Because it, they're going to, you know, point at you. And the Bob Roop angle, because it was so, so real and so emotional and everything, it gave me an opportunity to work main events. And actually, people came to see, but they came to see the angle. They didn't just come to see me. And when we got to be the fabulous ones, the people were actually just coming to see Stan and I. I mean, you know, but here again, Jerry Jarrett had put all the pieces together. It wasn't Steve Kern and Stan Lane, the fabulous ones. Oh, boy, let's jump through our ass and go see those guys. It was Jackie Fargo, his history, 
he was a legend in that area. And for him to endorse you and you become kind of like one of the Fargos in a roundabout way, a modern version, he just basically handed us all his fans. And they just got behind us because it, we were Jackie Fargo's guys. And so Jarrett was the one that orchestrated the whole thing and kept putting the pieces together. And he never let up. When, when we do a video, we stopped doing matches with enhancement guys on television. In my whole career, that's the way you got over on TV. I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder could tell you who was going to win the match, usually. I mean, you know, when Gordon Soley goes, well, there's Jack Briscoe and some other guy. I mean, you know, it was like that was how lopsided it usually was. But Jarrett created a new way of enhancing guys without wasting talent or just running you through guys just to show you could beat guys that nobody had ever heard of. So it really caught on. And even when we went to the AWA, Vern Gagne was so confused when we went to the AWA, he kept coming to me and said, well, what are you guys, baby faces or heels? And I'm going, we work for you. What do you want us to be? We can go, we can be a baby face or we can be heels. Well, I want you to be baby faces. Says, okay, so what about these videos? I go, you know, it's hard to explain when it first comes out and nobody else has done it. I said, this is just the way of getting us over that makes us look like we're almost rock stars transitioning into wrestling. But it's a combination of like rock and music and stuff. And so, anyway. It's hard to believe Vern didn't get a hold of that. What's that? I said it's hard to believe that uh, Vern didn't comprehend and understand that based on everything I've heard about Vern. (laughs) Well, if you'd have been there, I mean, you know, when I went in there, I I was pretty, you know, into history of wrestling business and everything. And being as close to Eddie as I was growing up and then, you know, part of business, I tried to learn the business aspect. I didn't see myself as the NWA world heavyweight champion someday. I saw myself as the guy that owned the territory. I wanted to be the owner. I wasn't shooting for stars like main events or titles. I was shooting for the big picture, and I'm trying to figure out who makes the most money in wrestling and who can stay in one place the longest. And that only boils down to owners. Well, there was only a few of the of the actual promoters in on the territories that I worked that I ever really respected from an intelligence level. And, of course, Eddie was the best. And then come along with, you know, Jerry Jarrett. Jerry Jarrett had a whole different um, demeanor. Jerry Jarrett didn't come across like Kirk Douglas. <laughs> That's who Eddie Graham was. He was a Kirk Douglas in a, in a movie or something. But with the hole in his chin and everything. But Jerry Jarrett was kind of almost like a wimpy. I mean, you know, it's like I'm thinking, man, he must have been horrible as a worker when I'd look at him and everything. And I'd kid him, you know, and everything. But the guy was so intelligent. He just knew how to orchestrate and manipulate talent. And if he had somebody, even if they weren't that talented, he would create something around them that would make them interesting for a time period. And if they didn't work out, they didn't keep you know, bringing people back, then he'd move them right on out. But, you know, and and that probably got ribbed on this too. But I was told Jerry Jarrett invented, invented the banana seat. 
on the bicycle. And I bought into that hook, line, and sinker, right? So I'm going, man, you are a smart guy. I had a banana seat. I loved it. Banana seat, butterfly handlebars, man. That was that was the deal here in Tampa. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that was when I was younger. And I think he was going along with it. Um, to this day, I don't know if that story's true or not, but, you know, I thought anybody that can invent the banana seat, they got to be smart. <laughs> you know, the hell with wrestling. You can do that, something like that, and wrestling's just a piece of cake. But you got to remember now, and I know you guys do, but territory days, they were so difficult to go every week to the same city and have the people come back, especially on weeknights during school, during this Christmas holidays, during Thanksgiving, spring break, whatever it is. I mean, you know, people, thank God the tickets weren't very expensive. I mean, you know, because that people had to come back and forth. And then I go back and I look at it in another light and I see the big picture, whereas they didn't have that much entertainment. Here in Tampa, as an example, I mean, Tampa, every Tuesday night, the armory here, I mean, you know, it wasn't sold out every Tuesday night, but there was a consistent crowd. But there was no Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There was no Tampa Bay Lightning. There was no Tampa Bay Rays. There was no, you know, concert every weekend. I mean, you know, you had maybe one concert a year come through the city and you had very little entertainment. Actually, Elvis worked in the uh, Fort Homer Hesterly Armory, too. So, I mean, they didn't have a lot of big buildings and coliseums. And so, you know, in a comparison, the, the part about bringing them back was people just wanted to go do something. And again... And inexpensive tickets. The only problem within Tampa was they had no way air conditioning. And the armory was like 110 in the summer, especially with the ring light. So people would be in there sweating. And then the rain and just all the different places we worked. But I was really, you know, I guess, I don't know if it's lucky or if I was working for U-Haul or what, because then I moved around from territory to territory, and I got to run a U-Haul every time I left to move. And the one thing I did learn is, all right, here's the thing. You wrestle in front of an audience here in Tampa and in Miami and whatever. It's going to be about the same. They're going to accept you about the same way. You take that same match and you take it to New York, it's not going to work. I don't care what you, how great you think it is. You have to work to what those people are used to seeing. You have to adapt. So you have to change. And everywhere I went, I mean, you know, AWA, when I went in the dressing room, there was Billy Robinson, Larry the Axe, Henning, um, the, the Claw, and all these different guys. But they had been in these, these territories for 20 years. And they were, you know, tired slow, lazy. I mean, you know, and you bring somebody different in there, you had to blend in with them, but you had to be something different enough for people to kind of bite into you and not really throw you up. I mean, you know, there's, <laughs> we, we went in there and of all teams that we started wrestling right away was the road warriors. Oh my God. I mean, I was a bigger fan of the road warriors than I was the fabulous ones. 
I'm going, I like the Road Warriors. They're cool. Only problem was sometimes Hawk wasn't that cool in the ring. He was kind of a hothead, and I had to outsmart him a few times, but, I mean, he got over it. It took a while, sometimes longer. I mean, you know, Puerto Rico, it took him three months before he talked to me after there, but anyway. So you just had to make the, uh, uh, you know, the transitions and, you know, go to San Francisco and work. Totally different. You just mentioned the Cow Palace earlier. I remember going to work for Cal- in the Cow Palace working for Vern. I mean, you know, he went all the way there, Salt Lake City, uh, Vegas. I mean, you know, and I was so excited about going to Cow Palace because one of my close friends, Kevin Sullivan, had already said, oh, man, you're going to really have a good time to go work out in Frisco and all that. And, you know, uh, it was okay. But the audience was so used to seeing AWA at the time, and it was still, we were trying to transition from coming out of Tennessee that was kind of like a little bit cartoonish at times and, and work into a semi-serious territory, but at the same time, slow ourselves down. I mean, working with guys like Frank Goodish and some of those guys that had worked Japan and worked all around. I mean, you know, most people don't know him by that, but it's Bruiser Brody. I mean, you know, so he was stiff and he was kind of like me. Only he was he had that uh, mindset from going to Japan so much. I worked with Nick Bockwinkle, and I think it was Nick Bockwinkle and Mr. Saito with Bobby Heenan managing. And Nick Bockwinkle hated us. He hated the fabulous ones. He's going, what the hell are they doing? And it was just stupid stuff. I mean, shoot me into the ropes and go to nail me, and I just hold the ropes and shake my ass at you or something. You know what I mean? And he's going like. That's not a wrestling move. So so now it's real, huh? Okay, well, where territory I just came from, the, we had matches where the loser eats a can of dog food. I mean, you know, the wrestling business as a kid, growing up in it, there, I can't tell you how many times I said, what the hell kind of business have I got into? I mean, when I went to Guatemala, they tried to kill me, and I'm going, what am I doing? Then I went to um, Pensacola working for Lee Fields. I go in the dressing room, and there's a freaking bear sitting in there. And I'm going, hold it. I'm not wrestling that bear. Well, wait a minute, Steve. Steve, just just to uh, clarify here, you're trying to say uh, the wrestling business doesn't stay the same? that it it, Well, uh, Barry, I don't know if we've uh, discussed that recently. Well, I could write a whole book on that, but... I'm That's volume to, two. That's volume two. Yeah, no, volume two is going to get really good because I've got some stuff to talk about <clears throat> people don't know. <clears throat> and they didn't get to learn it because I wasn't out there doing it. It was education and trying to teach. You're trying to teach <clears throat> talent, the wrestling business. And you got to understand that everybody thinks it's about moves. I mean, the most common question would be asking me, said, well, Mr. Kern, how many moves can you teach me? You know, Dean Malenko knows a thousand and one. And I look at him and say, well, I know a thousand and two. How many are you going to use in a six minute match is the question here. I said, you know, it's not about how many moves you can do. It's being able to do stuff that looks natural and comfortable to you that excites an audience. 
not being able to go, okay, well, I did this, 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 this. That's like a, watching a tennis match. They don't know whether to cheer or boo. And so the, the trying to tell talent, as you go around, even though you're like, let's say you're WCW, WWE, no matter where you're going to be, you're going to go from one part of the, the world to another. And you need to go out there and going back to Jack Briscoe being my mentor, one of the f- things that he taught me at the very beginning was to go out and watch all the matches. You know, as soon as, and usually my match was first. I mean, you know, I had I had music back then, but it was the freaking national anthem. I mean, you know, <laughs> and when I'd go out, after I got beat, I'd go in the dressing room, put a towel around my neck and watch out, walk out, and I watched everybody's match. Nobody really wanted my autograph. Back then, I was asking fans if I could take pictures of them because some of them were so freaky looking. I just wanted a picture. I'm going to show this to somebody someday. So can we get our picture made? That's and I mean, you know, nobody said, hey, can I get a picture with you? Or would you sign an autograph? So I was pretty left alone. So I'd be standing there. I watched every match. And then as I did it, then I get in a car with Jack, Gerald, riding. Okay, what'd you learn tonight, kid? Well, I learned I don't want to be Chris Markoff. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> and then they go, okay, well, here's what you got to do now. You got to take it up a notch and not only watch the matches, try to figure out how the guys got in the main event because there's the money. You want to accomplish an attitude that you're going to be a top talent someday. And if you're going to be a top talent, you got to program yourself after those guys and see what are they doing? How do they work? What is their, what is their secret? How do they, how, how charismatic are they? Or, or what do what do they do? Well, the other thing he taught me in which I taught most of the stuff I taught, I was taught by somebody else anyway. So I don't claim it. The watching the matches, the thing that I learned and I later passed on was, when you're learning the wrestling business, you want to identify with what people like in talent, but you don't want to carbon copy anybody because of the minute you do that, people recognize you're trying to be the rock or you're trying to be stone cold, or you're trying to be the undertaker, or you're trying to be Shawn Michaels or whatever. But I said, and this is what Jack taught me, pick out five guys that you really admire and study them and pick out something they do that you can incorporate into your style or your repertoire and utilize that. If it's something that looks good, they do it and it gets over, then use it because it, you know, if, as long as you're not in the territory with them when they're working, you can use it anywhere else you go. But if you do one guy, then it's you're you're an imitation. But if you do five, then you take five top guys that you admire and you pick a little from each guy. And I tell them, said, so don't jump up in the corner and raise your eyebrow. That's not what I mean. <laughs> pick out a way he stands. Pick out a way he turns his head. Watch Bret Hart. Watch the way he responds to the audience after not paying attention to him for the first 10 minutes. And all of a sudden he looks around like they just showed up. I mean, you know, Pick out something the way he sells. Pick out something the way that he never dies or he makes a comeback. And then just add it. And as you grow into this business, 
you'll start getting the whole thing because that you'll realize you're not inventing the moves. You're not inventing this stuff. You're actually doing stuff other guys have done, but maybe you're not putting it in in the right place. Maybe you've seen it. I mean, you know, and now it's time for you to do it. So you're just going to throw it out there whenever it comes across your mind. I mean, you're supposed to be telling a story. You're supposed to go out there and tell a story. And it, it's a pretty basic story. It's usually good versus evil. I mean, you know, okay, that's not too hard. Unless your opponents like the road warriors, they're always going, man, we're over. They go, you never do a heel move, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I tried to listen to this. I tell you, this is kind of funny. I tried to talk Hawk and Animal one time into being a little bit more heels because we're working against them and the people are cheering them and they're getting off and they're not, they're not selling. They're not doing anything. They're just, you know, clotheslining you, press slamming you. So I'm about to get a pilot's license for as much as I've been over their heads. And I say, what about if I make a little comeback and you powder out to the floor and you guys run around on the floor and hug each other like two gay guys? Oh, man. Hawk goes, no way, brother. <laughs> and I go, well, that's how you're going to get people to boo you. They're not going to boo you if you do stuff and they like it. Why would they do that? I mean, you know, you, you don't have the idea of what your, your part is. The Rock said it the best. Know your role. If that's your role, okay. But if that's not your role, bend, the, bend your attitude a little bit and, and do that. I mean, have you ever thought about dropping to your knees and begging off? And Hawk looked at me and said, from you? <laughs> no, but just imagine me with a big-ass gun. <laughs> I mean, you know, something that make you afraid of me. No way, brother. I'll take the gun away and stick it up your ass. I said, okay, well, never mind. Let's talk to Animal for a while. But, you, you know, getting guys to do things, sometimes have, guys have different things in their mind of way, what they're supposed to do. But to me, as long as I spend a business, this is the bottom line to the whole thing. Wrestling is an opinion. It's simple. Wrestling is an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. And they're all based off of the education, experience, and what they've witnessed that they've liked. And this is what they think is good. Or this is what they think isn't good. Or this is what they think sucks. And this is what they think shouldn't be done. But it's all your opinion. I have an opinion. You guys have opinions. I, gu I guarantee if we sat down and watched the match together, we just picked the match out of our ass and stuck it up there. I'd say to you guys, okay, what'd you think? And you guys would give me your honest opinion of what you thought. And I'd probably pretty much agree on most of it. Then I'd come back with a different slant and said, okay, well, here's what I'm going to tell you. Okay. First of all, they started the heat way too early. They got the baby face didn't do enough to build any kind of rapport that he could kick somebody's ass. Now he got cut off early. He dies. He didn't, he didn't fight back when he, when he started to fight back, he never registered what had happened to him. Like he just had his arm beat on for 20 minutes, jumps up. And it's like, he just came out of a locker room. I said, that's what I saw. But I look at it from a different situation. I mean, you know, sometimes it's really hard for me to watch nowadays, but I still see 
the success. So I don't argue with success. I just try to bend my opinion a little bit more nowadays and say, okay, well, in my era, wrestling was about emotion and taking an audience on an emotional ride where they're all come thinking this is all fake anyway, then you got them standing up, screaming, yelling, and wanting to kill somebody. You got them. Now, the new era, wrestling is about memorization and movement. It's all about the movement. They have to do a moonsault off the top onto two or three guys at least every, at least two or three times every show I ever watch. And to watch three guys standing there waiting for a guy to moonsault off of him, to me, I see right through that and I'm going, oh man, don't tell me they're going to do another moonsault. And the guys are thinking, well, this is a great move. The promoters really like it when I do this, or let me do a, a triple somersault off of the top. And that's where they think they're great workers. I'm a great worker, man. Nobody else can do what I do. Okay, well, maybe that's that's true in 2020, 2023, whatever. But that's not what it was about. Some of the greatest, now, my opinion of great workers, some of the greatest workers I ever watched only did a handful of moves. I mean, only did a handful. I mean, you know, and even guys that were the greatest attractions, to me, Hulk Hogan was the greatest attraction. And he had a, hand, he had a repertoire of maybe 10 moves max. But when he did them, they all had a meaning and a purpose, and it all fit together, and it worked for him. I mean, you know, back to that thousand moves for Dean Malenko, you don't need all of that. When I first started, I got beat up relentlessly. I'm thinking, what kind of business is this? What I'm watching on TV is nothing like what I'm learning in this sportatorium. I have never seen anybody drag my face across the ring like they do. Matsuda, I know you guys lost that war in Japan, but man, don't take it out on me. And here we go back to, okay, now you're all of a sudden working and none of that stuff has to be done. I mean, you know, I never, we did free squats before we'd wrestle and, and training and we do them to a deck of cards. My sister could beat me after I got done doing squats. Then I would get stretched. And one thing I vowed when I started teaching, my first student was Tracy Smothers. And one other thing I vowed was I'm not going to put anybody through what I went through because later on they're going to come to me and say, why did I go through all of that? But there was a purpose. Eddie Graham put you through it just to see if you'd protect the business. And it gives you a respect for the business. So if anybody says, hey, that wrestling business, it's all fake, huh? Well, yeah, you want to go outside and find out? I mean, you know, you're in a different position when somebody's calling you a phony and you, you kind of bow up to it. And it's because of what you went through to get into it. And so that was Eddie's psychology. And it, it was tremendous. It worked on me. But that was pretty easy. I mean, you know, I, I kind of went for pretty much anything anybody told me, except I did have a limit. So you guys still there?
We're, we're still here. And, uh, and for all of our listeners, if you're just tuning in and where have you been if you're just tuning in, we are being joined by the fabulous one, Skinner himself, Steve Kern, Steve the author of what I think may be the most popular, at least best-selling wrestling book currently available. It is currently not available on Amazon, though I know a new shipment is going to be available very shortly. The book is called Kern Chronicles, Volume 1, The Fabulous Wrestling Life of Steve Kern, and I reached out to Steve last week. He will have copies of his book, June the 3rd, Lutz, as we do the Super Bowl of Wrestling Reunion. And i got to say this, Steve, I talked to Jerry Briscoe this past week and at great lengths about this. We have This will be our 10th event. We have done something like 30 Q&As all over. I think the Q&A segment coming up between yourself and Jerry Briscoe, which we've named – 50 years of friendship might be the most exciting Q&A, at least that I've ever been a part of. I can't wait for this to happen. You've known Jerry for all these years. Give me your best Jerry Briscoe story that you can share on air. Well, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. <laughs> well, I do it. You tell us when one Jerry that you start, can't share Jerry on air. Talk, when Jerry starts talking at this Q&A, he's going to bring up every rib I pulled on him. And it's like rubbing a sore wound. And he's a shooter. And I'm not. I'm a worker. And still, at 71, I'm afraid of Jerry Briscoe. But the best, I guess one of the best harmless ones I did to him was when my dad first came home from being a prisoner of war. I mean, that was probably a topic of my conversations in cars and on the road that made me stand out with the boys and was different and interesting you know, to ride with me because that I had unique stories. And so Jerry Briscoe wanted to meet my dad and we had a show in Melbourne and my dad and mom lived in Melbourne. He had retired. He lived over there by Cape Canaveral. And when we were going, Jerry said, I'll drive. You don't have to pay any trans. I just want to go to your dad's house and meet your dad and see some of his memorabilia. And I'm going, okay, no problem. So when you when you go through Melbourne, you have to go over a bridge, Ugali Bridge, to get to Indian Harbor Beach is where my parents live. And it's like a peninsula, a long strip of land there, and it's not very wide. But one side's the Indian River, the other side's the Atlantic Ocean. And my dad was more towards, like, really one block off of the Indian, I mean, the uh, Indian River. And so as we come over the Ugali Bridge, and instead of going to the left to my parents' house, I told Jerry Briscoe to take a right. And I was real familiar with that area right there. And there's some really wealthy people live on that and on that peninsula. And there was this mansion about a quarter of a mile up from the turn. And so I had Jerry Briscoe pull in. And I said, this is my dad and mom's house. And <laughs> it had a big gate and everything. Fortunately, the gate was open. And we pull up to this mansion, and it's got a circular driveway. And Jerry goes, well, come on, let's go. I said, no, no, I think it'd be better if you surprise my dad. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, just go up to the door. He's going to know exactly who you are. And he's going, really? And I said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I said, Jerry Briscoe up to the, to the door to meet my dad at a house. I had no idea who lived there. <laughs> <laughs> we got up to the door. 
he's looking back at me and smiling, giving me the thumbs up. He was real baby face. <laughs> anyway, so this lady answers the door, and I can't hear what he's saying, but I can hear him trying to, he's holding his arms out like, is he trying to explain something? And then I could see him, he come back and his whole head's red. And I don't mean like being an Indian red. I mean like being a fire engine red. He come back and he says to me, he goes, that's not your dad's house. And I go, oh, wait a minute. No, this isn't my dad's house. We're at the wrong house. And I, like I said, I kind of targeted shooters. I targeted Billy Robinson and he was dangerous. But I did some horrible things to Billy Robinson. And I mean, you know, even Haku, Haku, the best man on the planet. I mean, I, I didn't even choose Haku at the time because of that. It was because he was naive and he was from from Tonga or wherever. He was Prince Tonga. And he was so, so nice of a guy that I couldn't help it. But I ran an armadillo down on the way to the town, West Palm Beach. And they were all over the side of the turnpike there. They get along the side there and eat something. But I was with Paul Orndorff and I told him, I said, I bet you I can catch one of those. Anyway, I ended up catching it and take it and put it in Haku's bag. Well, I sat there in the dressing room, biting at the bits, waiting for him to open his bag. And finally, when he did, the armadillo pops up and he flies up out of his chair, freaking out, screaming and yelling like a little girl and goes to run out the dressing room. And it said, pull, not push. And he hit that door at 100 miles an hour and backed up. He tore the stall off of the door, the little um, toilet area they had there to get out. But little did I know, he would grow up to be the baddest man in the business practically later on. And so he laughs at it now. He still laughs at it. And he thinks it's great. But I wouldn't have done that to him later on in his career, obviously. So, <laughs> Well, listen, Steve, before we uh, let you go, uh, and we do appreciate your time uh, and spending some, uh, uh, sharing some stories with us and stuff like that, we look forward to seeing you and Lutz uh, coming up here in a couple of months. Uh, I did want to ask you, though, one, one last thing. When you were talking about back in the day when you were first starting and your, uh, your intro song was the uh, national anthem and you'd uh, watch the rest of the card with that towel around your neck, just for context purposes. Do you remember on a weekly basis what Eddie was paying you then? Yeah, I know exactly. I made $40 a night, every night. It was a $40 guarantee in Florida. And this was the towns. Monday night was West Palm. Tampa to West Palm and back 200 miles one way. So 400 round trip. That's gas and whatever. Then Tampa Tuesday, or when I first started, they ran two towns and it'll be Tampa and Fort Myers. And so this jabroni you're talking to was in Fort Myers. Then Miami on Wednesday. Then Thursday, Jacksonville. Friday was either Tallahassee or Fort Lauderdale. Saturday was a 60 mile radius of Tampa like Bayfront Center, St. Pete, um, Sarasota, Lakeland, somewhere in this close area. And then Sunday was always ordered. I was making 40 times seven, and and that's exactly what I made. And I didn't, I didn't get out of that mode for the first five years in the business, even when I went to the Carolinas and Atlanta. And then Carolinas, I got a little bit of shot in the arm because it, I was working against the Anderson brothers with Tiger Conway Jr. as a partner then. So we got some 
matches that were like higher up the card. But average average payoff was forty dollars. I mean, my most famous story for payoffs was to Hulkster. He came to me when he wanted to get in the wrestling business. We have a little beach in South Tampa where we all grew up together. And I had a Hobie cat sailboat and I'd go out there and he'd come up to me and he'd say, Steve, man, I want to get in the wrestling business, man. You got to get me into businesses. Here's my line. This is a classic. You ain't going to make no money doing this shit. <laughs> hey, you know how many Ugh. times? He's repeated that line and my sister years of business. He goes, oh, Steve told me I wasn't going to make no money doing this shit. But, so. but listen, I want to plug Ian's book, Bahama. Oh, absolutely. Ian Rhapsody, because it, I did the foreword in it. That's the best part about it. But no, real, realistically, nobody ever wrote a book about the Bahamas. And, and most people didn't even know that we wrestled in the Bahamas. But the Bahamas was a unique place, and it's a really good book to read. I mean, I actually read it, and I don't usually read most books. So his book, of course, mine, secondary, but his book, The Bohemian Rhapsody, I did want to put a good plug in for him because it's a really good book. And it's interesting for somebody to, to read the history of the Bahamas because it, I, I actually ran the Bahamas when we had uh, PWF, which was the Professional Wrestling Federation, and I think it was 90, and it was me, Dusty, Gordon Soley, and Mike Graham that owned it, and we'd run it. And when you tell them you're going to be in the Nassau Stadium, guys had the wrong picture of that. And when they would show, when, we, when we'd go there, it was just concrete walls with uh, Coke bottles on the top that were busted so that people couldn't climb over with a chicken wire on the top. So when they threw stuff from the outside, it wouldn't hit you in the ring. And it was really, really a rough area. And if, if the people there got into the matches, they rioted at the drop of a hat. And I mean, you know, so it's quite an experience, but the book would be very interesting to an avid wrestling fan that was really looking for some entertainment so far as a book. Bohemian Rhapsody by Ian Douglas. And so, you can find both of these books on, available on Amazon. Steve's book, which is the Kern Chronicles, the fabulous wrestling life of Steve Kern, currently sold out on Amazon. However, we do expect copies back within about 48 hours, I believe. And Bohemian Rhapsody, as Steve was just talking about, also worked uh, with Ian Douglas to get this book out. I know that Steve will have copies of his autobiography. Ian was actually at our last event and sold some copies of his book and as steve said it is fantastic there's not a lot of documentation on wrestling in the bahamas this book is highly recommended of course jeff you want to meet steve kern in person you know where that's going to be june 3rd the tampa suburb of lutes at the marriott residence inn we are looking at 50 years of friendship between jerry briscoe and steve kern and we'll also be doing a Super Bowl of Wrestling Reunion on its 45th anniversary. Super excited about that. Jeff, how fortunate were we to have Steve with us today? Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Steve, my man, appreciate you joining us. And I know you're going to want to get back to that four-year-old grandson. No, no, he's gone. <laughs> my wife had to take him out of here. No, but I appreciate you guys having me on. Wrestling's been my whole life. I'm looking forward to the reunion. Jerry Briscoe is one of my closest friends. I love him to death. I mean, you know, I owe him so much for his mentoring with his brother, Jack. And 
we do have quite a few stories. I'm just I'm trying to pick and choose which ones I want to tell so he doesn't want to kill me after the show. So, but at the same time, I'm really looking forward to it. It's always fun working with you, Barry. Every time I've ever you've ever given me an opportunity to go out there, and even when you didn't give me an opportunity, I just kind of volunteer and show up on my own. <laughs> I mean, you know, but that's because that I enjoy being around not only my friends from the past, but also the fans. I mean, you know, the sad part about young guys and sometimes old guys in the wrestling business is they don't appreciate really who paid them. I, I tried to, I tried to teach, you know, that the only way you made money is people bought tickets to go see you. So the fans are responsible for paying you. And when you can take just the time to sit and talk with people, they're so nice. Everybody's always been so nice to me. I mean, you know, of course, I'm not a heel here in Florida, but but at the same time, everybody's also nice and friendly, and they're so educated. The people that come to your fan fest usually know more about wrestling than I do. And, you know, I, I enjoy going to them, and I look forward to it. And I also get to see Bob Cook, who who I admire. I mean, you know... Bob was a great hand. He just never had the right opportunities, but he was a great worker. So it gives me an opportunity to, I mean, it's funny. The last one I was at, Jimmy Garvin was there and Jimmy and I were partners for years and we actually rode together a lot. But, you know, some of the times when I walk up, the guys are looking at me like they know they know who I am, but they're not sure. And now I'm wondering are you suffering from dementia or um, did you just forget who I am? And, you know, so it's entertaining. Um, then you see guys like Robert Fuller the last time come up, give me a big bear hug from behind. I mean, you know, so it's very, you know, I don't know. It's not really emotional. I don't cry about it. It's not like a Publix commercial at Thanksgiving or nothing, but it's still, it's one of those times that really makes you feel good when, you know, you remember all the memories you've got. So I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, once again, we want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Once again, Steve's book, The Kern Chronicles, Volume 1, The Fabulous Wrestling Life of Steve Kern, and uh, the uh, the Bahamian Rhapsody book, both by uh, by Ian Douglas. We encourage you to seek that out on Amazon. And uh, Steve, uh, might I ask if you'll be having copies of your book available at the Fan Fest to uh, sign for fans? Well, if people stop buying them and selling them out, I might be able to get my hands on a couple of copies. But, <laughs> well, of course, I you know here's the thing. And you guys got to bear with me because one thing about me is I just tell it like it is. I've never done anything like this before. I mean, I never even sold pictures after a certain time in my career. And so when people say, well, you're going to sell pictures, I go, no, I don't want to carry them around. Now it's books and I'm not the greatest salesman in the world so far as um, like real estate or anything like that. So this is going to be an experience for me and I'm hoping to have books with me and I want to sign them. And if they've already bought the book, come please bring the book so I can sign it. I mean, you know, you never know. I mean, all of my friends are kind of like fading, like that movie Back to the Future, that picture they showed and they were, their faces were getting erased. Exactly, you know, yeah. Like that. You know so, what I mean? That one, that one poster, and I'm pretty sure you gave it to me, Barry, that was a championship wrestling from Florida poster with all the talent on it. I did. That's right. 
Yeah, that's that's an incredible piece. I mean, I want to get it blown up into a poster. I have it on just on my phone. But when I look at it and I cross across it, I see how many guys are gone. And then I see there's only a handful of us left. I'm, I sent that to Bob Roop this week, as a matter of fact. And Bob was like, he was a little overwhelmed with it and everything. And he said, what an honor it was to be on a poster with you. And I'm thinking, what an honor is to be able to just still talk to you. All right. Well, finally, uh, again, thanks again, once again, Steve, for joining us. Uh, Steve will be at the Fan Fest in uh, Lutz, Florida. Barry, what's that day? One more time. That is going to be June the 3rd of 2023. Doors open up at 11 o'clock. And, Jeff, we're kicking off the day. 50 years of friendship with Steve Kern and Gerald Briscoe. Super excited for this. Steve, thanks so much for joining us, buddy. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. Y'all be safe and God bless. So, Barry Rose, I know you, if nothing else, are a bit of a food snob, a food critic, if you will, a man whose love of food uh, and the food industry is well documented here in the Brothership. And, Barry, I sent you a photo the other night, didn't I? You did. And that, that, you not what. that photo. I meant the photo of the rest. Oh, oh yeah, the other photo. You yeah, sent it. And, didn't you the junk. So, you and know. I want to say I, I was either out to dinner or getting ready to go out to dinner, and a photo came through, and I got all excited, even though I wasn't the one going to this particular restaurant, because there's been a lot of debate internally about the quality versus uh, the quality of a place that I love, which is In-N-Out Burger. So I immediately requested, Jeff, full review needed on this recording. Let's tell the fine folks where in Jacksonville you happened to go to this past week. The Sainted Mrs. Bowdrin and I were visiting the original Sainted Mrs. Bowdrin uh, and uh, my sister, Reen, and Jax, and on, I guess it would be Saturday evening. Uh, we actually, Saturday afternoon, went to uh, one of these uh uh, it was a Texas, uh, day Brazil or something like that. You oh, know, yeah. these, uh, it's, it, it's not quite up to Foga de Chow standards. I'll just say that, but, uh, it was nice. Uh, we had a, a very enjoyable afternoon, but then for the evening, we wanted something, uh, not quite as heavy. And then my wife reminded me that what a burger. <laughs> we wanted something a little lighter. So we decided to go to Whataburger. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, instead of going after the Texas Day Brazil, we decided to go to Fogo de Chow. And we decided yeah. to get a hamburger. Uh, 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 my mom getting the junior burger uh, and uh, Mrs. Bowdrin and I uh, going for the, the regular burger. So uh wanted to give some opines on our thoughts on uh, the Whataburger experience. First of all, and it was something that I saw an article about before I tell you what I thought of the restaurant, Barry Rose. I saw an article that said, the number one thing that will tell you whether or not you're going to a restaurant that is a good quality restaurant, having nothing to do with the food itself, is what, Barry Rose? Uh, I'm going to, I don't know, the bathroom? Exactamundo. Okay. That is what the, uh, that's what the article said, that if a bathroom is in good shape, it's clean, that generally gives you an idea of the quality of the restaurant and, you know, like their standards as far as, you know, uh, keeping the kitchen clean, that kind of stuff. Well, as fate would have it, Mrs. Bowdrin have, uh, having to use the bathroom, she's going to love me mentioning that to the, uh, the brother shipper, uh, but, uh, went in, came she out. She went to wash her hands though. Well, I'm sure that's what yes. it was. Yes. Okay. So, uh, but she came out and she said, you know, the bathroom, was really clean and she goes i'm very impressed by the fact they keep it very clean so not only that but uh playing in the background a little huey lewis in the news i uh, was a positive for me we placed our order 
And we noticed on the menu something I've never seen before at a Dairy Queen, uh, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A, any places that you get a good milkshake from, Barry. Uh, I, by the way, Barry, there was a great looking, uh, vanilla milkshake, uh, that I, that I saw there too. <clears throat> I think Barry knows what I'm talking about there. But, um, <laughs> first time ever I saw a Dr. Pepper milkshake. Barry, have you ever had Dr. Pepper milkshakes? I have not, but I want to say I was reading that they actually have it. Did you actually try it? I asked for a sample. They were very, very nice about it and gave me uh, in a very, you know, like a little small cup. They gave me a sample of it. And I got to say. It was, it was really fucking good. Wow. So, uh, we went back home. Uh, we gave my mom her food. I said, look, mom, we're, we're going to be talking about this in the, uh, on the old show. Tell me your opinions. She said, first of all, she got the onion rings, Barry. She said the onion rings, very good. Quote, not greasy, which is always good for an onion ring. Sure. Uh, so I will say in all fairness that Mrs. Bowdrin, uh, both of them said their burgers were quote, okay. I thought mine was good. It was larger than your average, uh, quote unquote, fast food burger. The staff, very, very friendly, like Chick-fil-A kind of friendly, if you know well, what that, I mean. That's, that, that's, that's huge right there too. You get a staff that's dialed in and they're friendly means they aren't miserable going to work every day. So bathrooms are clean. Onion rings were, and Mrs. Bowdrin, if I'm correct, Jeff, is an onion ring connoisseur. Uh, that, that is the original Mrs. Bowdrin. By the way, okay. not, not the now sainted Mrs. Bowdrin. It's the original sainted Mrs. It's my mom. Okay, okay. let's uh, cut through the chase. All right, because I know Just that Kim is, Kim is a big onion ring person as well. Yes, she uh, did not get the onion rings, though. My mom did, and my mom was the one that enjoyed the onion rings. That so the said. burger, just I want to touch on the burger now. So we're, we're, we're really doing well. The, you got a Dr. Pepper milkshake. How are the French fries, actually? That's always French fries were good. I, I got the fries, too. Uh, those were good. I was impressed with them. Uh, okay. you know, I, I think would you I would compare those two. Uh, I wouldn't say they were like McDonald's good, but, uh, you, you know what? Uh, I'll throw this out there because, uh, I asked Kim what she thought about it in general. And I said, well, uh, you know, we, when she said, okay, I said, well, what are you talking about? Like McDonald's or and she goes, no, no, better than that. She goes, As a matter of fact, she goes, I would say it's better than Wendy's, which I thought was interesting. Uh, but, um, and you know, Wendy's with the new fries out, you know, yeah. that they, they yeah. do. They did. No, no, no. Yeah, you uh, in and out this, buddy. But anyway, so uh, but I like you, big Wendy's guy, Mr. Cornette. <laughs> no, no. I like Wendy's new fries. That's what okay. I like. Uh, but um, I would say that the fries are on par with the new Wendy's fries, which to me is a positive, uh, you know, for you in and out snobs. I'm talking to you, Seacrest, uh, you know, but uh, Seacrest out. So, uh, so overall, it was a, it was a positive experience for me. They are building one literally a hundred yards from where my wife works. So I am anticipating a lunchtime visit to see Mrs. Bowdrin and going to Whataburger Bear. Yeah. And that probably, when you talk about doing reviews too, I, I don't often think that you can just pop into a place once. Certainly if you go once and it's great, that's fantastic. But I think to be fair, I think you've got to give a place maybe two to three shots to sure. make it happen. And again, you know, the, a Whataburger in Jacksonville versus a Whataburger in Georgia uh, is going to be two different things. So we talked about the burger. What kind of bun does the burger come on? Well, uh, I will say uh, it's your standard, uh, you know, no sesame seed, nothing like that. Standard uh, white bread bun. Okay. Yeah, nothing gotcha. fancy. Nothing fancy, and the burger itself. What kind of burger is this? Like a like a quarter pounder or a thin patty? What do we got going? Well, on? I will say it was a thin patty, but it was a larger 
Patty then, you know, like we referenced like McDonald's or Wendy's or, or Burger King. It was a larger patty than that, but it wasn't like, you know, you go into a, a sports bar and you get, you know, a quarter or a third pounder, nothing like that. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, and let's compare this to a place that you and I have both eaten at Burger Fi. How does it compare to a place like Burger Fi? I think, I think a, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably a pretty fair comparison. Uh, the, uh, the Burger Fi would be a, a, an apt comparison. Excellent use of the word apt. Apt. Yes. Gotcha. If I gun to your head and, you know, which one you going to? What a burger or Burger Fi? Uh, well, yeah, I've only gone once to, to Whataburger. I think I probably need to go a few more times before I can pay. I, I really like BurgerFi. So, uh, but you know, my BurgerFi, I haven't had BurgerFi in three years because BurgerFi was down the street from our house in, uh, in South Florida. So, uh, you know, gotcha. probably right. Yeah. Last question. Value. How is it? What was the value going to Whataburger? Do you feel it was worth the cost, whatever the cost was? Was it overpriced? Is it a great value? Um, I felt it was for the price. I thought it was pretty fair value. You know, okay. I had no co- It wasn't like I sit there and went, fuck, man, this is so damn expensive. And let's be honest. There are those places out there. You know, uh, I'm, I'm talking uh, <laughs> no, five guys, five <laughs> you know, guys too. You're right. So, you know. <laughs> Where, where you afterwards you're like, okay, I'm getting a small, uh, have, have a burger cut in half. That'll be $23. That's what it seems like it happens at five guys. But no, I did not get that sense that I definitely get from five guys. Uh, and, uh, that apparently you get from Shake Shack. All right, Barry, about time for the old ship to head towards port. What do you think, my man? Yeah, this, I, boy, this was a, between the AEW talk and Steve Kern, this was a lot of fun. Well, let's not forget that Whataburger review, my man. Oh, yeah, loving that Whataburger. Yeah. So, uh, as we begin to wrap up, I will just, uh, state that our producer is Sweet Lou Kippelman, my co-host Barry Rose. I am Jeff Bowden. Sometimes they call me the Booker. Uh, Barry, very quickly, I do want to mention I went up, uh, we mentioned in the show, I went up to, uh, or went down to Jacksonville to see my mom and my sister. And while we were there, I turned my mom and sister on to a TV show that is absolutely, I don't know if I told you about this, very fantastic three seasons, bada boom, bada bing, less than 20 episodes, great show called Dairy Girls. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's on Netflix. If you get a chance, check it out. Very, very funny stuff. And I got my mom and my sister watching it after Kim and I started heading back home. I got a text from my sister about midway through the trip. We just finished up the show. It's fantastic. So I'm going to recommend that to you. And on that note, I will mention that we are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. See you next week, everyone.